Welcome and thanks for joining. I'm Amber Ward of Life Unlimited. Today, we're chatting with Diane McGrath, a woman who lives life curiously and actively. Diane is a true superhuman, not because she's invincible, but rather she's adaptable, open, sharing, and gives back to communities in so many ways. And together, we're going to demystify biohacking as we work to encourage others to take ownership of their health and well-being. Diane is also a sustainability and business consultant, a Mars One astronaut candidate, and a self-hashtagged biohacker, minimalist, and self-experimenter to give you a hint of some of the things we'll be talking about today. She's one of seven Australians out of 100 shortlisted astronaut candidates from around the world in the Mars One mission, which is an organisation seeking to establish the first permanent human settlement on Mars. And as part of her journey, Diane is optimising her health, well-being and life in general to become as Mars-ready as possible and to be the best version of herself on this planet. In the midst of this, Diane is completing a PhD in environmental engineering with a focus on food waste. We connected through our passion for all things biohacking, wellness, and our shared understanding that sleep is key to everything. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the super informative, superhuman, Diane McGrath. Welcome, Diane, and thanks so much for joining. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me on, Amber. It's awesome. I really can't think of a woman more suited to a discussion on living a life unlimited than one who's literally planning on going to live on another planet. It's really <laughs> quite next level. And it's actually very fitting that when you're about to embark on a journey where you are absolutely responsible and accountable for your health and well-being, that you're embarking on such an intense journey into the exploration of your own health and through that your work in biohacking. Exactly. I have quite a number of people, generally women, reach out to me wanting to understand more about biohacking because in the main sort of market of it at the moment, it can appear to be quite intense and the word hacking sounds very intense. So I like to refer to that or break that down as bio-optimizing just to make that feel a little bit more accessible. Um, Could you share your journey with us into your daily habits that you've brought into your life through this fear of biohacking and also some of the more intensive experiences that you've embarked on, like the experiment with your incredible three-month journey? Yeah. Um, Just actually your point that you made before, Amber, about biohacking as a term, it's it's interesting. It has some negative connotations, I think, for some people because of the word hacking. They think Mm of IT and people hacking into people's accounts, so really negative elements. But um, but what I take from that word hacking is almost a case of unlocking. Yes. So for me, it's unlocking our potential within our biology, and that's so. I'm, I'm not afraid of the term biohacking, but it's just because I see it in a, in a slightly different light than than some other people. Mm. But I love the word optimization, though, because you know, in many in many instances, many of us are probably quite healthy already. We're in a great state, but that doesn't mean we can't be better. Yes. So that's, that's kind of my, my attitude towards it. And, and when I first got shortlisted for the Mars One mission back in uh, late 2013, um, and I had already previously had a look at all of the health risks that astronauts face um, in space, and then I started looking at what life might look like on Mars, for example, um, for the human body, and I, I realised that there was no way Diane McGrath at that time was was going to be Mars ready. Essentially, I had to do a lot of work to become Diane 2.0 to make sure that who I brought to the table was going to be optimal for that new community, that new society, that that team of people who were trying to do something so incredible. So, um, so that's kind of what kicked it along to start with, and um, that was it's been a journey since late 2013 because um yeah it's uh and i've been practicing lots of different things in biohacking ever since really my day starts with sleep <laughs> it's the best and you said asked before and you know your typical sort of day and and so on and it's sleep and sleep sleep is a really big issue for health for astronauts uh, most astronauts sleep about an hour less per day than they do here on earth uh, and while there's not a lot of data 
around it, it's quite likely that the quality of that sleep is significantly less as well because they have a lot of light pollution, noise pollution, disrupted circadian rhythms, all this sort mm. of stuff that's absolutely going to affect the quality of the sleep, not just the duration of it. And so when I saw that, I know how critical sleep is, I started hacking that first to work out if I can get sleep right, then so many of the other things kind of fall into place. Absolutely. So on Mars, you've got access to a lot less daylight, which would be affecting your circadian rhythms. Is that correct? Um, actually, on Mars, there's a tiny bit more daylight. Ah. Um, the, the, day, the day is about nearly 40 minutes longer, but in space, it's a bit different. You don't have day and night the same way. Like when astronauts, when the space station is going around the Earth, for example, they're experiencing sunrise about every 90 minutes. So mm -hmm. <laughs> how on Earth can not just your sleep cycles be normal, but then how to, the effect that has on release of, of, of different hormones and that for managing elements of your health. And so all of this sort of stuff can just go out the window entirely. So how do you maintain a good circadian balance in mm. such an environment. On Mars, different situation. We've got a slightly longer day and it's it's not too dissimilar to our standard circadian clock, essentially a little bit longer, but not much. Um, if we were kept in a dark space and never saw the light, our bodies would still fit with the same sort of circadian clock that we have um, on, on Mars, very, very similar. So so not too stressed about that. It's more about the the environment around me, the physical environment and things that I may not be able to control. For example, light, there's probably going to be, I won't be able to necessarily have a completely black room. I won't be able to necessarily control all the noise around me. So what are some of the ways that I can induce higher quality sleep regardless of the environment? Simple things such as wearing eye masks to bed is a really easy way to <laughs> reduce how much um, light pollution hits your eyes while you sleep. Uh, but there's a lot of other things too. The thing that I'm really curious about in terms of adaptability and how you prepare for this is being yeah. in such close proximity with others mm -hmm. as well when it comes to us having control over our health because we take for granted a lot of the things that we can actually kind of live in this little well-being bubble to a degree mm. here. So what are some of the ways that you prepare yourself for that? Yeah, actually there's a lot of important elements of having social contact with people. We know that that improves our, our longevity opportunities mm. too. You look at all of the, the studies that are done in those, those blue zones on Earth where those people who, who live longer have a lot of social contact as well as having healthier lifestyles in other ways too, but social contact is a really important part of it. Um, so it, the, with the Mars One's current training program that they have considered the the people who are shortlisted and start the 10 plus years of training to get ready to go to mars will essentially almost be living together for all that time um, mm -hmm. in some ways so we, they'll be traveling and training together constantly um, as well as that they'll spend a number of months each year in an isolated environment practicing how they would live and work as a team in in difficult challenging circumstances simulating some of the the conditions of being on mars such as delayed communication so that sort of remoteness. Um, but what that does lead, as you, uh, I think you possibly allude to there, Amber, is, well, when we do have our lovely little biohacking life where we can go and sit in a corner and meditate and do all these wonderful things that create this, um, this force field around us so that mm -hmm. we can be as healthy as we can be within this force field, how do we still have interaction with all of the, the elements outside of, of our physical being that could actually have both positive and negative effects at times um and and i think one of the benefits on mars of course is that we won't be necessarily exposed to a lot of the same sort of uh environmental pollution um uh, viruses etc bacterial overloads that we have on this planet so we'll be in a very tiny closed environment and we'll only have what we take with us so that's you know even thinking about the microbiome um the sort of people that you have with you you'd, you'd really want to make sure that they're healthy and well so because whatever they take is what you're going to have and <laughs> that's it absolutely there's this symbiosis that's going to be going on between you all that's absolutely right yeah which is yeah. really interesting to think about isn't it we don't often think about that in in our um, consideration of health and um, and what feeds my ongoing health 
need to be exposed to. We know that you know variety is a, is an important aspect. It, it creates a hermesis sort of effect in our body where we go, oh, I didn't know what that was. I better be able to deal with that. Um, so whether that's food or environmental stimulants or whatever it is, uh, and so making sure that there's enough diversity, not just in the people who are going to Mars, but also in in their their the microbiome potentially as well do we have all the things that are going to ensure that we have a, a, a united a, a healthy um construct of what could be a, a good microbiota um but that's another another sort of soft side thought there we're constantly moving between the micro and the macro right like we are this little microcosm within ourselves and there's so much going on here but then we're also interacting with other humans plants and animals on the planet so when we think about the potential to live on a planet that hasn't been inhabited before it is quite an incredible opportunity when we're starting from scratch even to consider things such as consciousness and how we affect each other and our humanity through our consciousness and what we're taking with us so it really does um, fascinate me to consider emotional intelligence and all of these aspects where you'll be in such tight proximity with others and the importance of that in this situation i agree and i think that um, if we can consider, we, this planet is a closed system too. We we don't think about that. We don't see the physical boundaries of this closed system until we're outside of it. So many astronauts who go up to the space station and look down on Earth and see the tiny, thin little atmosphere that protects our planet and all of life within it, they see that closed loop, but we don't because we're we're part of it. Um, and so. I guess going to Mars where the closed loop will be so physically, physically small, you'll see all of the boundaries of it. It'll be the, the habitat that you live in. It'll be the, the spacesuit that you're walking outside in. That is your closed loop. Um, so everything within that is actually much Is it? I guess that, that you talked about consciousness there. I think there'll be a sense of awareness that we have that we, I believe they would, would probably have to have um, to be able to thrive a lot more. Mm. Uh, and we don't, I don't think we walk through, our life in this planet as aware as potentially we could be and whether that's in relation to the things that have a a positive or negative effect on our health but our well-being as well like um how we feel about ourselves and other people our contribution to society all this sort of stuff so all of this um i mean it's one of the the many reasons that i I meditate is to Mm -hmm. increase my capacity for awareness and um and it starts with the self really doesn't it Yes, it absolutely starts with awareness and responsibility for the self. And when we go within and we're able to adapt and adjust and reflect accordingly, and then you add one more person to the equation and they've got their awareness happening. And so trying to remain present in that moment, present as a collective, is another thing entirely. As we move into groups, people often find a space to hide within that. So I do find it really fascinating that in the the thought of being in this environment it really is um up to both the individual and what they're bringing to the collective as well as others who are literally dependent on their survival and we often forget that here we really forget how much we're dependent on the survival and well-being of each other yeah it's it's interesting there's been some um some I don't know if it's a research as such, but reports on on the effects that um, meditation can have on other people around you. And there was, I don't know if you know about the, the, the large group of people that were brought into New York to do a meditation almost experiment. And, uh, and after a period of time, they saw during that time that um, crime d- declined a small amount during that time. Association, not necessarily causation. We know there are very different things. However, mm. an interesting, an interesting story. And and I, sometimes when I'm practicing my meditation, I do it in very crowded areas. I do it specifically with the intent of connecting more and having greater awareness of myself within this group of others. Yeah. Um, so say say on a crowded tram in Melbourne, peak hour on a tram in Melbourne when you basically almost have your head up someone's armpit it's like you know it's it's, it's a crazy environment yeah. uh, and and people get on their phones and and close off their world and so i tend to use some of those moments as the time to do opposite uh, i try and not look at the phone not listen to a podcast and instead just 
feel feel who I am within this space and all of the energy and people around me. Um, and and it's amazing sometimes how once you go to get to that point of of awareness with others and that that it the connection you have with others and it starts to reduce some of those boundaries. I, I was meditating um, in a sauna um, in Adelaide a little while ago and um, most of the people in the sauna were people from um, different backgrounds and they were speaking uh, such a variety of languages that I had no idea what I was speaking. But I started meditating and then all of a sudden I started hearing the breath of others and feeling the breath of others and sensing the beginning and ending of words, sentences and meaning, if that makes any sense. So I felt a totally different connection with those people around me and there was it, it changed the space entirely. It wasn't just four walls of wood and people sitting on benches. It became um, almost like an ecosystem or an organism of itself, which is really interesting. Um, so that was a, an interesting experience. And so I guess what I'm trying to do is develop a sense of, of that awareness and, and improve my ability to be, as you say, present uh, and, and what can that do in that moment? You can actually change the moment. Exactly. We're all essentially part of this quantum energy system and we really can change our reality through our present moment awareness. And I do encourage people to take opportunities when they're, you know, in a traffic jam or when they're in a, a public space, in a queue or in public transport, to take those opportunities to to become mindful and be really present in the moment. And this is really where we can find some unexpected joy in our day-to-day as well. We can really just take our blinkers off and be in the space of awareness for what life is gifting you at that moment. Yep. You're obviously a master of your mindset. (laughs) (laughs) Tempting to. It's a journey, isn't it, in life? I don't think anyone's ever got it down pat. Did that come through meditation or did that come through other tools that you learned to implement? I think it is something that uh, I developed as, as I got older. I was always quite a determined um, woman, but I wasn't necessarily that as a, as a child. I was actually very shy and, uh, and timid um, girl when I was young. And uh, my mother um, used to my mother's quite a religious woman and she would pray that uh, I would gain confidence. Um, and, uh, and over the years, I, I just, I guess, how did I become confident and, and bold enough to, to give things a try? I think having small wins and also having my father was, um, and still is probably the biggest feminist I know in my life. He was wonderful. He, he, as a child, when I was young in the seventies, I wanted, I wanted to play cricket. So I was a young girl, six years of age, seven years of age, and I wanted to play cricket. But girls in those days, they didn't play cricket and I wanted to play in the local boys' team and that wasn't going to happen. So my dad decided he was going to coach the local boys' team. So that, that just removed, absolutely just removed that boundary. I never thought then that there was something I couldn't do just because I was a girl. Yeah. And so that allowed me to become confident to try things then. I, there was nothing that you know, forbade that. Um, my parents didn't stop that occurring either. And uh, it, what it did mean, of course, was because it was in the local boys' team, I was the only girl, I had to work 20 times harder because otherwise it looked like, you know, the coach's daughter gets all the favours. So I had, to, I had to be better than better. <laughs> so I think some of that some of that determinism has come from that to like, oh, like, oh gosh, I better show when I actually can play this game. Um, and, and I guess that's just an example of, of how as I've, you know, gotten older over the years from childhood through to trying new things now as a, someone who's you know, turning 50 next year. Um, I don't think there's anything in our life that, you know, we can't learn from. And, mm-hmm. and I guess, and, and that's, that's come through, through many years of, of becoming a serial failure, allowing, allowing things to go. And, and that's, I guess, some of the self-experimentation that I do. I, I want to know why something didn't work. Not just, oh, yeah, I had a good night's sleep last night. Fantastic. Well, I need to know what happens when I have a bad night's sleep. So what are the triggers so that I can fix that? So, yeah, so I guess that, you know, 
the wanting to understand why something didn't actually go the way that I thought it would is, I guess, part of that journey towards a mindset that's like a growth mindset. And we, we talk about that a lot in, in the business world and in schools these days, growth mm-hmm. mindset. Mm-hmm. And that is all about finding other options and solutions and looking outside the box and, and seeing failure as a, as a way of learning and, and all that sort of stuff. It's about reframing failure. I just sort of see it as a, um, the next step towards a different success. Yes, and there's that goes back to that notion of there is no failure, there's only feedback. And when you can take that mindset on board, it's there's only ever a lesson to come from everything. And so there's no fear in approaching what it is that we want to do next. And I'd really love for you to share with us. I can see that you've got your Freestyle Libra there. I'd love you to share with us what this tool is that you've been using as part of the three-month experiment with your diet. And look at that little personal monitor. You are the cyborg. <laughs> really interesting. I mean, that's think about that cyborg sort of mentality. It's there's. I mean, the whole spectrum of biohacking starts from everything as simple as getting better sleep through just doing very simple diet or behavior changes to that transhumanism grinder sort of end of the spectrum which people other people um that aren't in the biohacking space and even those in biohacking find that a bit extreme and but is it though in some ways i mean we put a a pacemaker in somebody to help them to to live better and manage some of their cardiovascular issues mm. um we use um you know some of the the transplants for uh, for people like with ears and so on as well like with some of those um cochlear ears and uh, all this sort of stuff how is that any different to transhumanism um i i think that the difference at the moment with some of the biohacking stuff is it's it's very personal and it's usually taken outside of a research or medical facility it's usually done um, by the individual or within a, a small collective. Yes. Um, so, but, and, and one of the things that I'm finding interesting is to, to watch all of the technology as it comes out, but not just the technology, uh, the ability to, to see and read and have access to your own data. And once you have that, then you can be really empowered with what you do with your health. Mm. Because you need, to under, you need to understand what it all means. You know, that, that, that comes with you know, research or even just seeking advice from people who are experienced uh, and your doctor as well. I mean, if you've got a good doctor or a GP in Australia who's prepared to take a, a lifelong learning journey with you on your health, then it's a win-win for them and potentially some of their other patients as well. Absolutely. It's a total win-win. And when we look at what's changing in terms of our knowledge of human biology and, you know, things just like the the mind-gut relationship to mental health and well-being as a single example, that conventional or traditional medicine teaching is a little bit far behind so the more we can work together with our practitioners and the more doctors move into integrative medicine and approach things from a more holistic um, perspective the more beneficial it is for everyone in our communities Um, and also the more conversations there are about normalizing this it also means that we're looking at a preventative system rather than just monitoring a problem as it arises we're actually monitoring as we go along to see what's happening with our health and use that to optimize our health rather than wait until try and fix something that's gone wrong Yes, and in many instances, the the research that's out there that that doctors have access to, a lot of stuff around health is not necessarily um, causative. It's it's correlative, so it's association research. So it's a population study. They'll be looking back. They'll they'll take a um, the researchers will have done. Have a look at what people ate over a particular period of time, and people are notoriously bad at reporting in food diaries this is 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 very well known in the literature Mm. um and then have a look at a whole lot of blood markers or or maybe their bmi or weight change or whatever and and make try and make all these different relationships and statistically you can do that sort of stuff you can make relationships but they're they're just relationships it doesn't mean that a causes b and so by doing things such as as this my 24 7 monitoring of what's going on in my blood glucose, I can get an almost immediate response to a particular stimulus. And so I know what that does to my body. And there's enough research out there to understand what high or low blood glucose does 
to that the health of a, of a person. So um, it allows me to optimize that. And it's been really interesting. The the experiment that I'm doing that you referred to, Amber, it's um, sort of called three months, three ways. So for every month I'm, I'm eating a slightly different diet. I'm tracking it 24-7 when it comes to blood glucose. But I've also in advance had a, a really large amount, five, five vials of blood taken um, before I started at the end of each month as well. So then I can see, well, what else changes? Not just on a daily basis. Are we seeing these diets have an effect on, on other elements of my health? What about some of my sex hormones? What about estrogen? What about testosterone? Uh, what about some of the inflammatory markets, um, mm-hmm. lipid, pro- lipid profile and so on? So having a look at all these things. And then what that does then is it gives me enough data to then tell a story. Yeah, because this is this is the story of me. This is the story of me and my health. It's not necessarily the story of other people. I can learn a lot from it, and it may stimulate questions for others. And if that's what that does, fantastic. We should always ask questions. Is this right for me? And mm-hmm. don't just assume. Um, so yeah, that's kind of yeah. And I'm doing it while doing an intensive strength training program as well, um, because I'm wanting to see if what elements of my diet are going to have a positive impact on me in having the ability to maintain good muscular mass and thus in doing that and increasing strength I'll also be having a positive effect on bone density and these are two areas when it comes to astronauts health uh, they lose a lot of bone mass and muscle mass in space. So can you share with us in terms of the practical aspect for people mm-hmm. who are looking at exploring this and, and doing it yep. the right way. As you said, I think the most important thing when we talk about diet is that it's different for every person. Mm. Um, and it's and, and that is the, the beauty of really taking this sovereign approach to your health. So mm. on one side, what are the ways, the actual tools that you measure? So mm-hmm. whether that's what you're eating, um, yep. you're meditating. I, I know that you've spoken about how meditation yep. while you're in the sauna has a different effect. And then mm. are you driving the tests that you're asking for, or are you working with a, another professional who you're co-creating that with? So when it comes to having all of the blood tests done, um, I've, there's a company in Australia called iMedical and you can order all the blood tests you want. Um, you pay for it. You're paying for it yourself. This is not being paid for by Medicare. So anybody from Australia who's worried, oh, my tax dollars are paying for your experiment, no, they're not. <laughs> I'm paying every cent for this experiment. Um, so, and what you, you get uh, basically a printout of, of a pathology request form and they have um, a number of labs around Australia where you can go have those bloods drawn uh, and then the results will be obviously sent through to you so you get your own results which is great mm. um and it's been i just got only yet last night yesterday i just got some more results back which was uh, that for growth hormone for the last month and i sat down and i compared it with what the growth hormone was in uh, advance of me starting this experiment so month one's done i'm in month two now mm-hmm. and that was really interesting um to, to get that back it was quite a quite a significant increase in growth hormone in one month um a 1500 percent increase actually wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> but there's a number of reasons why that we can we can talk about that like i'll sort of car park that um so, but yeah, so I've got, uh, I've worked with a company called iMedical, pay for the test myself. So no one's um, funding any of this except me. So that also removes um, any sort of aspect of potential bias or. Absolutely. Um, and when it comes to monitoring other elements, so I use my aura ring to track my sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the new aura ring, um, I mean, obviously, the, I could put on flight mode and, and not need to sync it, synchronize it for for days or weeks or whatever, and then all the data will come in together. But because I'm trying to do something at a regular basis, I do check it daily. I check it first thing in the morning. Um, and it just, that helps me verify what I'm seeing with some of the other um, information that I'm collecting. Uh, the other item, where is it? Where is my, the actual reader? Mm, it was in my pocket. Anyway, so my um, the blood glucose monitor itself that I have on my arm, the sensor, uh, has a monitor that I just swipe, like you scan 
you scan a you know your card when you go and buy things at the shops. Um, same sort of thing. So I swipe swipe my arm, and on the on the monitor I can read what my blood glucose is at any time, and I keep that next to the bed as well. So if I happen to wake during the night. I quickly swipe my arm. It's just an automatic action action now. I quickly swipe my arm. So I've got a reading of that, of that moment exactly when I woke during the night and then I correlate that with my aura data in the morning too so I can see just out of interest what was my blood sugar like at those times of the night as well. Um, which is, And it's been some fascinating uh, outcomes there from the, the different months of, of diet that I've had so far. Um, so I track that. Uh, what else I track? What I eat. I definitely track what I eat. Um, so I, I used to use my fitness pal in the past, but I now use um, a, an app called Chronometer. That's C-R-O-N-O-M-E-T-E-R, um, Chronometer, because it, it also breaks down to the micronutrients as well as macronutrients. Uh, and you can set it um, to whatever you want in grams or whatever, even at, in a ketogenic sort of diet, it has a it has a default for keto too. If you can't be bothered trying to work out what macro ratios you want, so I use chronometer to track that. Um, what else do I track? God, you know, but <laughs> um, definitely I journal every day, and in my journaling, I capture other things such as you know my, my different meditation experiences and so on, um, and I try and take photos of, of interesting things that occurred that I need to go, like, oh, I just capture that bang. Cause if we don't, it, if it's like, Oh yeah, I'll remember that. No, you won't. Um, <laughs> yes. So I, I take a photo of it. So then I've got it. Um, so then I don't forget it. Uh, it just helps me to make sure that by the time I get to the end, I've got time stamped information that helps me tell a story. Uh, and as someone who's, I'm, I'm doing a PhD at the moment, not in anything, anything at all to do with this. My PhD is in environmental engineering, which is in uh, food waste in particular. Uh, but the data sets I have are both qualitative and quantitative and photographic and storytelling. And, and it's a massive data set, but it is entirely to show how things affect each other. That's what I'm look, trying to do, develop a model to illustrate how different aspects of, of how we experience dining out, how that can create food waste. So it's about how things affect each other. And thus, similar thing here, what in my life affects me and the health and my outputs and what's possible. Um, some of the other things I track, of course, is my weight, but not just my weight by stepping on scales. By doing the um, strength training work I'm doing, I'm at a place called um, Recomp HQ in Melbourne, and there I'm, do, I'm getting every couple of weeks I have um, a body composition testing done as well. So we have a look at nine different sites on my body where they do caliper measurements which is a much much more accurate than stepping on some of the um the body fat recomposition scales they're not so fantastic um so that's been really interesting to track that as well and we, and we track how much weight i'm lifting and time under load and that because you don't necessarily have to lift something super heavy if you lift something that's a little bit lighter for a lot longer it's time under load that that creates some of that tension as well as long as you're working to to a challenging challenging point um for some of the things some of the things i'm tracking uh it's but it's been really interesting as well like through through my mental health like i always track that too it's another app i have which is a, a whole series of different emojis and i select the emoji that sort of expresses how i feel um so that's allows me to see is there any changes in how i'm feeling my general sense of of happiness and well-being or whatever emotionally um during that time too and uh, it's yeah it's, it's been a, a, i've i've been happy to to discover some things and surprised to discover others but delighted that it's teaching me more each time yeah, how wonderful. And I love those little things, like just adding the simple things in because these all stack up to such a big yeah. story. And so the more we can integrate these quick tools into our lives to capture it all, the, the, mm. the more rich the story is that we can actually go back and see and track those things. And sometimes there are um, beautiful surprises in terms of what mm. actually influences us. So. And that whole element, Amber, um, of telling a story, that's one of the reasons I thought that I'll, 
I would share this as I go on Instagram, as you know, like I'll put up the occasional picture on Insta, but um, I also will do an Insta live every now and then and actually talk about something I've just experienced, like I came out of the sauna and this is what happened. And so, and, and that gives people a chance to engage too. Like people ask me questions during that so or have discussions um, around that particular issue, So, which is fantastic. That's part of storytelling is, is finding the words but also um, what are the, the elements that are critical to, to other people. I can put up a picture but is that important to someone else? Yeah, and it's that you know it's such a valuable sharing, and thank you for doing that. I was really fascinated when you um, spoken about your glucose levels and mm. the response from meditating while you're in the sauna. Yeah, I'm a massive really fan of just stacking things, you mm. know, um, because we can do we could do five things, or we can do one thing. We could go for a run, or you know, we could go for a run and focus on our breath work and our visualization, and mm. uh, for an example. So um, it's it's great to hear then the the actual data in that of what's happening and then how does that affect your sleep and um, mm. I think for a lot of people as well, the, the fact of you sharing uh, our sleep and if you could just share a little bit with the audience around the details of um, sleep, just not in terms of how we think and we're able to function in oh, our gosh. day, but sleep <laughs> in terms of our um, blood sugar levels and uh, the effects on diabetes, for example. Can you share a little bit about that and and the benefits of being able to monitor your glucose levels in relation to your sleep yeah it's it's, it's a fascinating area we find that um i mean i'm not i just want to clarify up front that i am i'm not a doctor um and you know, as they say in the financial world anything um, you say here must be considered with your specialist um, i think it's important to to say that because there are people who who may like read my Instagram stuff or whatever um, that might want to try something. I, I do hope they do it within the context of their own life and their own health. Yes. And so it's and, important and to researching. <clears throat> oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and but when it comes to your question around blood sugar and um, and sleep and diabetes, the research is is so clear that um, when we are sleep deprived, we see our blood glucose increase. And this, this, and this maintains itself across the day. This is not just, oh, like a little blip in the morning. It'll actually stay elevated, through the, which is most of us experience this. If we've had a really bad night's sleep or we've been out all night the night before, we've only had a couple hours sleep and we have to get up and perform, how many times do we get mentally we want to go, oh, I'm going to go for that, that high sugar snack or I need another coffee, all these sorts of things of stimulation. Um, we've we've done things by having those sorts of nights sleep that actually do affect our hormone profile. Um, we alter in one night's deprived sleep, only getting four hours sleep in a particular night was shown to increase people's um, blood glucose levels, but also reduce their insulin sensitivity. Now that is a bigger concern, really. Blood glucose will drop down over time if you're insulin sensitive. But if you're not insulin sensitive, then that's a big problem. That's where you're going to start to see metabolic problems occur, such as obesity and diabetes and this. And people who have, have had weight issues over the years, um, you know, sometimes simple things such as changing sleep behaviour, they see weight just fall off them. It's really quite remarkable how improving sleep health can regulate some of those hormones. When we sleep at night, that's when a lot of our, our body's doing its, its recovery work, and, and that includes releasing hormones at particular times. Now, earlier we talked about circadian clock. Every part of how our body operates has its own little circadian clock within it. So there are times of the evening when particular hormones are starting to be released. So if we're... A, not sleeping well or if we're deciding oh, I don't I, I can survive on four or five hours a night we're kidding ourselves because what we're doing is is trying to change how the machine works and the machine is actually built with a default system that keeps it running the most efficiently for as long as possible so when we try and hack in a bad way that system um, by trying to get remove the defaults then we're only going to be short, shortening how long that machine's going to operate for efficiently. So it's a big problem. Absolutely. And I think that's the beauty of the aura ring, isn't it, is being able to look at your mm. HRV and seeing how you're moving mm. in between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic yeah. state and then 
looking into, okay, what is affecting that? So we can look at, you know, meditation mm. and diet and movement and all of those things. And yep. is there a, a starting point where you, that you found that's rich in information that can then guide people to the right places if they were just starting to have an interest, if they were listening right now and thought, you know what, I've really been interested in, in taking a little bit more control and mm. what's going on, where are maybe, do you think, some good starting points, whether it's in terms of tech or forums, mm. for people to be able to... Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, there's so much information on the internet. You mentioned HRV before and, and there are so many different devices that will measure your heart rate variability but what do you do with that information? It's, it's all very fine to find a whole lot of stuff, but mm. some guidance is also really helpful. Um, I know when I was starting, yes, I'm, you know, I'm a bit of a nerd, so I went and did a lot of research online and I would use, I would use medical journals. I would actually use medical journals after having read some random person's blog post. I can read a blog post and go, oh, that's interesting. Hmm, why does that happen? And then try and understand the why so that then I can actually manage that in such a way that's going to be effective or not or be aware of the consequences there's a lot of people will take a, a pill for this or a pill for that but not realize that it could have an effect that's a negative one such as for example um some of the stuff i've been playing around with sauna uh, if you take a high dose um b3 uh, so niacin you can increase the detox qualities of sauna which is fantastic and, and i really did see that um but there's also a limit too if you hit if you're hit a, a dose that's too high for you and it's very individual if you hit a dose that's too high for you that starts to increase alertness but also difficulty in falling asleep mm. thank you aura thank you aura for confirming that yeah. <laughs> so so i found what was my threshold dose and just keep my v3 at a particular level that allows me to still get those detox qualities that i need so you start to sweat faster lipolysis is occurring etc etc uh in sauna but without having that, the negative consequences of, of then having, you know, almost an insomniac sort of <laughs> response yeah. in, in the evening. Um, so where would I go? Well, I guess I started listening to a lot of podcasts and a bit like this, you know, people who uh, had experiences, um, especially people who not just, oh, my life changed because I did this, but then a lot of podcasts with people who were of a scientific background who talk about the literature that that made a big difference to me because mm. of my own background um i've got uh, four university degrees and so i have um uh, you know with back my initial undergraduates in mathematics so i do look at um i do look at a p-value and know what it means because uh, i did four years of statistics and, <laughs> uh, and so it, it makes a huge difference to be able to be critical mm. so that's why to start with, though, doesn't mean that I'm an expert in all fields. I just know how to look at data. Um, so I wanted to understand, though, what that data meant. So that's why I started listening to a lot of podcasts. And like anything, I think like we talked about at the start of our conversation, I think if we get sleep right, we can learn so much more about ourselves and help ourselves take a quantum leap towards starting to optimise all the other things too. So one of the places I started to learn a lot more about sleep is listening to Sean Stevenson's podcast, um, The Model Health Show. He's, uh, he's understanding uh, on sleep as, uh, as an important element of our health and well-being and the way he communicates some of the research is, is really, really accessible. And so I found that was a really good start for me and then and his book as well, Sleeping Smarter. Um, but then for me, I needed to go deeper than that. Once It's a bit like anything. You're talking about stacking stuff before, Amber, which you know, all of us have been playing around in the biohacking sort of sphere for, for anything more than a few months start to stack stuff. Um, but as you say earlier, you know, choosing one thing, like if we do one thing and do it well, and then you've got something to build on, because if we're trying to do too much too soon, you don't know what the thing is that's having the positive or negative effect. I can do some of the stacking I do now and be able to delineate what's going on a little bit because I've got the history of experience. Um, and the way that I've, um, for example, with this experiment that I'm doing, the way that I'm trying to determine some of the some of the points that might be interference versus supporting a particular outcome, um, I'm having small differences in the way that I'm having my diet. For example, the first, the first month was a paleo-esque diet, still pretty high in fat for most people. I think it's about 55% fat, um, but much higher in protein than what I would normally have. I was having two grams per kilogram um, body weight, which is relatively high for me. But I saw massive, massive gains in, in strength and muscle. 
Mm. Um, and there's a few, like I mentioned before about growth hormone, there's a lot of things which affect growth hormone um, and higher protein content in your diet is one of them, as well as strength training, as well as hot cold thermogenesis, as well as infrared sauna, as well as not as stopping not fasting, like don't fast, um, all of those sorts of things will help increase growth hormone. There's a lot of other stuff too, but those, you know, those have a very strong effect. Um, and so this month in my diet at the moment, I'm doing essentially almost identical everything except for the diet. So I'm still doing the strength training, I'm still doing the infrared sauna, I'm still doing hot cold thermo, you know, all of the other stuff. But the difference is I'm having a lot, slightly lower amount of protein and a much higher amount of fat. So then we'll start to see, all right, how much does diet then affect that really? Is, is it much of a diet? I am in ketosis, so I recognise that too. So we do know that um, that fasting does reduce um, you know, the growth hormone um, secretion. So, and we know that ketosis um, in being a ketogenic diet can mimic fasting in some way. So I don't know how much that'll confound it. I'll, I'll have a look at the, the research there and keep tracking my um, blood ketone levels as well. But yeah, so if you could, I think stack stuff once you've got an understanding of what you're doing. Absolutely. But do something and do it well. And I, I would always start with sleep and just choose one or two things. I mean, Sean Stevens has got a great post on his website about 21 ways to improve your sleep. Mm. Pick one, pick one and, and do it for a week. Mm. And then even, even without all of the, or if you don't have an aura, if you don't have any other sort of sleep tracking app, you'll know if you're feeling tired or mm. not by the end of the day. You, you'll know. Mm, exactly. Even if someone's starting point is reducing blue light or limiting blue light from mm. 6.30 and having an iris blue blocker if you need to, but mm. actually turning it down, turning it off, because mm. what we're actually doing then is not only eliminating blue light, but we're actually allowing our, our minds to wind down as well. So there's often yeah. a number of things that are happening within each action that if exactly. people just took one starting point um, as eliminating blue light and then seeing what the difference is there, uh, and that I believe is a very important one on many levels uh, for our health. Mm. So um, mm. but I think the most important thing that you've mentioned there is that people, if they're going to blog posts or listening to podcasts, then go and actually look for the, the research yeah. on that and are doing yeah. that in parallel and are making it relevant for, for them. Exactly. And so I have a question. How do you feel about giving up lamb shanks for crickets? <laughs> oh, lamb. Um, yeah, actually, I, I eat crickets daily too. So um, I have it ground up, um, so the cricket powder. There's a, exactly. a number, I think we've got five or six suppliers now in Australia, which is fantastic. So I do have my old faves that I go to. Um, so, yeah, that's part of my diet on a regular basis. I pretty much use it as a spice in my stir fry. So you don't need as much meat then if you've yeah. got cricket powder in there because it's you know, pretty high in not just protein and, and iron but um, also calcium, eight times more calcium than red meat. So it's pretty it's pretty intensive uh, nutrient, which is wonderful. So because there's not going to be no lambs on a spaceship. There's no, no. <laughs> the, the chance of having uh, animal meat on Mars is well, – although I do think about it, this. There's already companies in the US now that are commercially producing synthesized proteins for Correct, human, yeah. human consumption. Yes. Um, and that only that only started to develop only about two years ago where the first laboratory in the UK produced a, a hamburger patty in a petri dish from a stem cell. So and now two years later we're already at commercial production of this sort of stuff. Will we be doing that when we go to Mars? Um, I think it's quite possible. I think it's quite possible that um, not only will we be surviving on a plant-based diet, which is what they're considering for Mars at the moment, which is supplemented with insects and algae. I mean, algae, how nutrient-dense is that? Fantastic. Um, but we'll also be then, I think, most likely looking at synthesised proteins, quite likely. I'd be highly surprised if we're not. But the technology needs to be proven. That's Mars One's um, approach to everything. Technology needs to exist and needs to be proven. They're not going to do it until they know it works. Mm, absolutely. There's uh, Australian-based Food Frontier who's doing some great work in that area and I'm cool. very interested in uh, a petri um, petri meat, I'm much more interested in that than I am over ever touching soy products. So, <laughs> yeah. oh yes, definitely. And I think about, I mean, a lot of people, um, choose to be vegetarian or vegan for ethical reasons, not just because of what they believe is good for their health. And once again, this is an individual thing. Um, 
And what if an animal never had to die for us to eat meat? Mm. You know, it's an interesting question to put out there is you know, does it change people's perspective about this sort of research and this way of eating? Is it okay then or not? Does it change it? Yeah, exactly, because people are looking at it from different perspectives. Some people are looking at it from um, the emotional transference um, through as an energetic perspective from the animal. Some people are looking at it from an ethics perspective of um, the killing and other people are looking at it from a perspective of the environment or a combination of all of those things. And, um, you know, we've got Food Frontier in Australia who are doing amazing work in terms of lab-grown meats and looking into the potential and growth of that which is fantastic and something to keep an eye on. And we also consider um, the actual nutritional value of crickets and on a sustainability level, the return that we get um, and the, the low consumption of water and the, the, the lowered impact on the earth compared to traditional um, cattle farming, for example, is um, quite phenomenal. So they're all really important factors in terms of sustainability and, um, you know, considering the nutritional value that we get out of what we're eating. I'd be highly, I know we talk about it as future food, but it's been used for millennia. And in fact, majority of the, the, the world eat insects. You, you go backpacking in Southeast Asia or South America and so forth and and you will see people eating insects as part of their, their everyday life. Mm-hmm. This is not, you know, some unusual fad food. And when people talk about, you know, paleo diet or paleolithic eating or ancestral eating, I bet your bottom dollar we were eating insects and bugs and grubs and that well before we learned to hunt efficiently because mm-hmm. it was a heck of a lot easier to, and we were, we were scavengers. We scavenged. As a, as a species well before we were clever enough to, to hunt. Yeah, and I have a little uh, laugh around the biohacking um, world, which I'm a part of that sphere. But my brother and I grew up in Western Sydney and we used to go out in the midsummer heat, which was like mid to high 40s, and pitch the tent in our front yard and call of our friends in and we'd make them sit there and swelter until they sweated and couldn't stand it anymore and then make them jump into the swimming pool. Oh, hot cold thermo when you're a kid, it's an automatic thing yeah and so i laugh because ultimately like i love well tech i love all of the things that technology brings to us a cryo room a float pod which is one of my favorite things to do um a new uh, ir saunas that are just incredible some of the technologies that are out there in terms of delivering um incredible light and heat to our bodies now um but ultimately also some of this thing is so some of this stuff is so intrinsic to our knowing and, and it comes from really old processes um and sometimes it can be very simple exactly Okay, so before we wrap up today, we're going to go through a few little uh, fun fact tag teams where I'm going to ask you some questions and I will give you the response from my side and then at the end you get to ask me a question which I actually have no idea what that's going to be. All right, awesome. What's your favourite sci-fi film? Favourite sci-fi film? Oh, Mm. gosh. Um, I don't have a favourite because they're all so diverse. Um, I've got a, a, a very powerful memory of seeing the first Star Wars movie. My dad took me to see that when I was about seven. Um, it was one of the first grown-up movies I got to see uh, back in, gosh, it was, oh, <laughs> that's a long time ago now, um, back in the, the late 70s. Uh, 78, I think it was, 77, 78 that came out. So, yeah, strong strong memory for me because my dad took me to see it and it's sort of I always imagined we would be living like that. Beautiful. My favourite sci-fi film is Interstellar. It's one that really stuck with me in terms of it's just a very poignant story. It's emotionally engaging and I super love the visuals. Um, but I actually have many sci-fi films that I love. Um, okay, next one is if you could choose three top artists to have on your playlist for your seven-month journey to Mars, what would it be? The great thing is we won't be limited, we'll be unlimited because we'll have internet so that we can download anything we like. I'll be able to binge away on Netflix as much as I like and have all the... In fact, I would love to do something where I'd put it out there to the world uh, if I was lucky enough to get to go to Mars and I would love to 
have people almost put together playlists for me so I could experience new music and from different cultures as well. And, uh, and yeah, it, I, so for me, that's what I'd probably do, actually. I haven't just thought about that. Yeah, I think that'd be fun. I'd love it. I'd love to contribute to a Space Voyage playlist. Uh, awesome. Cool. Put a little, <laughs> bit of bow, a little bit of Bowie in there would be good. Oh, sure. Okay. I think we can arrange that. And one last question. Have you ever dressed up as a sci-fi character for a party? Ah, yes, I have. Um, I dressed up for uh, as, a, as a Star Trek character um, for an event, like a, a function um, last year, year before I think it was. Um, but prior to that, no, I had never dressed up as a sci-fi character. I dressed up as a, a pirate, as a million other things, but never as a sci-fi character. So that was the uh, that was the first for me. And what about you? Have you ever dressed up as a sci-fi character? <laughs> It was for the relaunch of the Star Wars film and I was working for a cinema company and I dressed up as Yoda. <laughs> Not Leia. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I, uh, a friend of mine has the, the perfect Princess Leia hair and so um, she claimed that spot. So I, I dressed as Yoda and had a great time speaking to everyone um, from the perspective of Yoda all night. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so can I ask you your, a question now? Please do. Okay, now- this is a question probably that um, you get asked a million times. Uh, so excuse me. How did you, what stimulated your first foray into biohacking? Oh, well, I think a lot of it goes back to um, two of the biggest gifts that were granted to me. And one was being given the confidence that I could explore and, and do anything um, that I chose to. So I always had the power to do that, to take that confidence. And the second one was this approach that came um, primarily from my mum and uh, as one that was, you know, nature is best. So for example, um, when we were kids, it was if we were hungry and wanted a snack, we were sent to the fruit bowl. Um, if, uh, you know, when we played, there was lots of time outdoors uh, and exploring uh, and using our creative energy with things like creating our sauna tent and <laughs> things like that. So um, then later, as I had some health challenges, um, we, my mum did, I guess, encourage me to look at alternative practices where if the medical system wasn't able to give the information um, that I needed to heal something, it was, okay, let's look at what what is the cause of this with the tools that we had uh, at the time. And then as I moved into my teens, I started meditating very young from the age of 15. So I guess that was also very influential in the way I, um, in the way I really became to observe myself. And then from there, it moved more into um, just being a total nerd and looking into our environment and what are the things that affect us in the toxins in our environment so it's very much into sustainability and so that actually played a huge part into my entry into biohacking it's great so i developed this quite broad lifestyle where i had put a lot of research into um, my environment and what it was that i was putting into my body and then how to uh, work with my energy Brilliant. So thanks for sharing that. And uh, it's, it's interesting, so many people, um, there's, some, there's some sort of stimulus that starts you on a, a more focused journey, isn't there? But, mm. but as you highlight here with your life is that you've, you've at least been exposed to a positive, healthy environment in the past. Like you know how to access those things, you know what they kind of look like, mm. uh, which is such a, such a gift. So that's wonderful. Yeah, it does feel like a gift and it all, I guess, is um, an extension of my life's journey. And now we have access to different technology, which is a a game changer for us in being able to take control of that research and and access to to greater research and medical journals and and things that, you know, the great uh, internet has, has brought us. But also... Um, it's something that is relevant here to share because it hasn't always been, you know, well informed. And and speaking to your comment earlier about, you know, this journey is unique for everyone. And something that's important to share from that is, you know, I remember my mum bringing home a book from the health food store and it had a list of all of the um, preservatives and and additives in food, in commercial food. And I remember reading it and just being like so distressed at reading. 
you know, what's in paint and antifreeze and all that kind of terrible stuff. And um, from that point, though, what without having the correct information, I'd actually eliminated um, some very important um, nutrients and fats from my diets and, and and certain food choices that I'd made um, where I wasn't actually fully informed in terms of the nutri- uh, the nutrient values of them and the importance of having those things in my diet. So I think it's really important, um, especially as we move into the, you know, the biohacking space and we want to optimize and we might start removing things from our diets or trying different diets. It's really important to be informed and, and to really understand the nutrient value of what it is that we're either putting into our bodies or what we're um or what we're depriving our bodies from because maybe we shouldn't be doing that Mm, and it's hard it's hard to make those decisions sometimes especially when you are younger there's only so much life knowledge you have and and who do you go to to seek such advice too that's a really hard thing because a lot of doctors won't necessarily be as aware of everything i mean most doctors listen they they do the best job they can they really Absolutely. do. They, they, they're trying their best to, to keep you healthy because that's what you're coming in for. Mm. Um, but you know, in many instances, they haven't had the opportunities to learn about different modalities of health, for example. Um, they're, they're, I think there's only like a week or two weeks worth of nutrition training for most doctors. Um, actually, it's actually four hours, I've heard. Four hours. Wow. Four well, hours. I must have uh, spoken to people who decided to do an intensive course then. Absolutely. <laughs> four hours. That's crazy. And yet, I mean, gosh, our nutritional profile plays such a big difference to our lives, doesn't it? It does. And look, they are doing their very best with the information, um, you know, that they've been given. And there's doctors who are specializing in in different things now and, um, you know, bringing integrative medicine into the work. And also, you know, we really need to take responsibility for if we're going there, what information are we taking to them as well? Um, and that's where we really have the power um, to learn about, you know, monitoring ourselves and how do we do that in a controlled way and, and asking for, you know, what it is, um, what are the expectations of the results that we're looking to achieve. So it's no longer about putting it in somebody else's hand. It's about working together with someone and actually becoming aware of um, our own bodies a little bit more and taking responsibility for that as well. Um, so, you know, really important to speak to what um, you were saying before is that it is our own journey. And for example, people can watch from the sidelines and have a look at your three month experiment that you completed. But that's just a model of what was what you were doing for yourself in your experimentation with yourself. It's not something to directly take and transplant into their own life. It's to use as uh, as an inspiration to say, how is it that I can take responsibility and investigate and explore my own health? Yeah, absolutely. And what, look, we're only here once. You know, we're on this planet or another one, hopefully, once. You know, what, what do we want to do with that time? Mm. What, what qualities do we want to enjoy and the people who we want to spend time with? We can get caught up sometimes in the, the nitty-gritty of things that do they really matter as much when you sit down and, and think about what, what brings you joy? Um, what can you do in your life that increases the amount of joy you have? And, and often simple as as being a better person for somebody else too. Oh, that that's so important. And just on that one, um, you know, I know that Dave Asprey has aspirations of living to 180. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you feel about that in terms of longevity? Are you, do you have um, high aspirations in terms of how long you'd love to live or are you really into packing in the love and the joy in, um, in a shorter period of time? Um, look, as, as long as I'm still able to contribute, I'd like, I'd like to live for as long as I'm healthy and able to contribute to society. That's especially if I do get to go to Mars, uh, everybody, everybody in that community, no matter how old they are, will be a critical contributing member to society because there's no, there's no chance to dial a plumber or dial a gardener if something's not working. You've all got to sort it out yourself. You have to be completely earth independent. This is, you know, this is a really, really important consideration. So if I do get to go, that would be important for me. And so that's part of the biohacking stuff that I've been playing around with as well. Like what are the, the resources we have on Mars that could assist us in becoming 
healthier people for a longer period of time, including cognitive function. And, that, and that's where I started playing around with some of the stuff with cryo, that my 10-day cryo experiment I did, where I increased my cognitive function um, within a very short period of time as well as improving my sleep. I mean, I was getting two and a half hours of deep sleep a night during that two and a half hours. Wow, that's incredible. I know. <laughs> wow, that's um, truly incredible. Those guys are just down the road. I'm going in for my 14 days. Cold on Mars, cold is a resource. The average temperature is minus 55. That's average yeah. temperature. It gets a lot colder than that at night. If there are ways that we could harness what's already there as a resource, why on earth do we need to have medicines brought from earth or us having to synthesize them with rare um, compounds that we also have to have supplied when we have a natural resource there that might be able to assist us uh, in being the better better us that we can be same thing with you know playing around with sauna and um different wavelengths of light the main food production is hydroponics using variable leds hello, yeah, we've already got our sources. So the consideration of, of health and longevity for Mars, um, any, any sort of, whether it's food or, or technology, it's going to have to be multifunctional. How can it, yes, not only grow food, but how can it help me? How can it improve and maintain my health? So these are all the sorts of considerations. I mean, I'm not sure what um, all the criteria are that Mars One will have for these sorts of things, but I can tell you now, if I'm lucky enough to be shortlisted, I'll be letting them know about this sort of research as well to say, well, that's great. Can we just make sure it covers these frequencies, about 820 to 830 um, nanometers in red? So that'd be awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And look, I think that's why you've been so successful as a candidate for this mission as a biohacker and someone so passionate about sustainability is that working at this level of innovation, you know, to future-proof uh, technologies and capabilities and, and human capability, um, of what actually is a very valuable tools for what we could be and potentially should be doing here on earth and then that wild potential of if this journey eventuates off to mars uh, what the potential of life as a martian really could be like yes it's unlimited Thank you so much, Diane, for joining us. I really do value your input, your sharing, your sharing on social media, your wisdom sharing. Uh, it really is beautiful and I'm really enjoying the journey. I'll share some links in the notes and at the end where people can find you so that they can join you for the journey as well. No worries, Amber. And thanks for having me on today. It's been lots of fun. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. And I'll catch you on the other side. Thanks so much for joining. I trust you enjoyed Diane's generous sharing as much as I did. Connect with her on Instagram at D.A. McGrath, that's D-A-M-C-G-R-A-T-H, and her website is dianemcgrath.com.au. And you can connect with me on Instagram at Life Unlimited or work with me in my one-to-one optimized self-program where I can be contacted via lifeunlimited.net and those details are also in the notes below. I'm Amber Ward of Life Unlimited. I wish you love and good health on your wellness journey and I'll catch you again soon.